Well, good morning. And just in case we haven't met, my name is Jay, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Gahanna campus. And uh, let me invite you, if you have a Bible or a device, uh, that you can open it with me to the book of Romans, chapter 3. That's where we're going to start into this morning. You may also want to pull out your message notes from your worship folder. You can follow along there, or you can do the same thing in your, uh, the New Life app. There's some places you can fill in some blanks and some other places where you can write some notes. But we're in a series over the book of Romans. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul rejects the presumption that identifying as a Jew or participating in these Jewish rituals like circumcision will make a person acceptable to God. Now, lest you think that Paul is being anti-Semitic, Paul targets the Jews as the ones with the best religious argument. I mean, Jews had received promises from God, and these ritualistic practices that he had given them. But even though, he's saying, you can prove yourself to be an actual member of God's chosen people and you followed God's ceremonial laws, it's not enough to stand right and acceptable before a holy God. Your religious acts do not make up for your sin. And so no amount of religious identity or religious practice or good works is enough to make you holy. And as a result, we all, Jew and Gentile alike, we all stand guilty before a holy God. And so having stated that then, Paul pauses here at the start of chapter 3 to entertain two objections. The first objection is basically this. Well, then, if that's the case, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Or following God's given action of circumcision? What's the advantage of all of that, then? And this is about, you see, religious identity. Because we all have some way of seeing and approaching God that we feel comfortable with, even if your way is just to deny that he even exists. We all come up with some way that we've come to see God and some actions that we think we need to do that will make everything okay between us and him. I go to church and I try to be a good person. Or... I'm a Baptist, or when I was a teenager, I came up and said a prayer and threw a stick into a fire, and, and uh, that, that did it, or like these first century Jews right here, I'm a Jew, and I'm keeping all of these, ritual, all these ritualistic practices that God gave us to do. But Paul is making the case that none of this matters in the courtroom of God. That all of your religious practices, that all of your ritualistic observances, that 
all of your self-definitions come up short in God's courtroom. Well, let's look together. Romans chapter 3. Let's look at the first four verses. Paul says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. Paul is saying that if, if religion doesn't matter, being Jewish or Baptist or Methodist or whatever, then what's the point? I mean, why did God call Abraham in the first place? Why did he form a people and rescue them out of Egypt and give them circumcision as a sign to identify themselves as God's people and command all of this ritualistic obedience, all of these things, these offerings and feasts that we see all throughout the Old Testament? Because you see, there's an identity issue here that if you were a Jew in this area, you would have felt. They were God's one true chosen people. And all these ongoing actions that they were doing is what they believed would ultimately make them right with God. So they thought. And so they're saying to Paul, don't mess with that. Now, in our day, we're not dealing with the same situation. It's 2,000 years later. Christianity has come to be seen not as a Jewish sect, but now a separate faith aspect altogether. But this religious identity aspect still plays itself in our day. I've seen this type of thinking many times with people who uh, see themselves as being Roman Catholic Maybe you can identify with that. I had a friend uh, whose life was going in all the wrong directions. And uh, he started coming to church, and he gave his life to Christ. And let me tell you, his life changed. I mean, he stopped drinking. He stopped doing drugs. He stopped partying. I mean, his life made massive changes for the better. And when his mom found out about it, she pitched a fit. Because you see, he was Catholic. And how dare he be going to a Protestant church? Now, at the time, I always thought it was interesting because he was Catholic culturally, I guess. I mean, it didn't seem to impact his life in any way. He didn't go to Mass. He didn't practice the sacraments. It didn't impact how he was living. But you see... For his mom, this was an issue of religious identity. That in her perception, being right with God came back to this preconceived notion of a person's religious identity as being Catholic. That's how she had worked out in her mind that a person would or wouldn't be okay with God. Now you see, this could be a a very emotional issue. 
Paul experienced that in Acts chapter 17. He was in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul had presented to his fellow Jews there the truths about Jesus. And he had persuaded a number of Jews to see that Jesus was this long-promised Messiah that they had been looking for. But then he dared to make this offer to some Gentiles, to some non-Jews. And when he did that, all hell broke loose. And there were riots, and they drove Paul out of the town. Why? I mean, stand back from that and say, well, why did that happen? It's because he dared to question that their religious identity wasn't enough to make a person okay with God. Paul had dared to offer redemption to uncircumcised Gentiles. And so their identity as the special people of God had been threatened. And Paul's presentation strips away the presumption of our moral and religious identity. But Paul is not saying that there isn't any advantage in being Jewish are faithfully following the rituals and practices that God had given his people. In fact, in verse 2, he says that as his people, they had been entrusted with God's word. The entire Old Testament, the word of God, had been delivered to his chosen ones. And it told of a holy God who loved them, but also of this problem of sin that separated them, and it foretold of God's plan of redemption through a coming Messiah. Further, in verse 3, Paul speaks of God's faithfulness to his people. That even though they had continually been unfaithful to him, God remained faithful to them. Read the Old Testament over and over and over again. God's people are untrue or unfaithful, but God holds true. And Paul's going to come back to this in a much lengthier way in chapters 9 through 11 when he deals with his faithfulness to his people. And then in verse 4, Paul makes it clear that God is just and he's fair, and he is faithful. And it's through his gospel that God will prove he is faithful by providing a way for all people to be able to be made right with God. But it won't be because of their religious identity or by their ritualistic practices of obedience are anything that they could do, anything that we could do, and that's because of his second objection. And that is, well, what about sin? Look at verse 5 to 8. Paul says, but if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, 
What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we are saying, we, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. Paul says, some might even say that our unrighteousness just makes God's righteousness all the more clear. See, God knows, they're saying, that, that we're going to fall short and that we can't live up to his standards. And so why would God punish us for not being able to do what he knows we can't do? So therefore, they concluded, just sin away. In fact, the more you sin, the better God looks. Now, this is a twisting of Paul's language. It's clever, but it's false. It's fake news. You remember back in chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. And in the verse that follows, verse 18, he adds that God's righteousness is also revealed in his wrath against sinful people. And so some were twisting this to say that the sinfulness of man must somehow reveal God's righteousness. And so God would be unjust to inflict, the punish, to inflict punishment of his wrath. And since the end result of our sin is going to be his glory. And in verse 6, Paul denounces this. He says, certainly not. In fact, if you have another version, it may say, may it never be. We might just say, that's just not correct. That's not right. That's not the way it is. And then in verse 7 and 8, Paul just restates this twisted logic. He says, verse 7, someone might argue that if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And their condemnation is just. You see, one thing that's very clear from the Garden of Eden forward is that God judges sin. That a just and holy God must judge sin. And so our just God does judge sin. And the gospel establishes that the Old Testament law doesn't save because people can't keep it, or at least can't keep it fully. And some were twisting this to say 
Well, then Christians must, must be opposed to living the moral life that's exhorted by the law. That if Christians oppose salvation by the law, then Christians must be lawless. And if you take away the law as the standard that justifies, then what motive is there for right living? And Paul is establishing that this is a challenge to the gospel. You know, many Christians today, they wouldn't use these exact words, but they often say the same thing. Maybe you've said this, or you've heard this, or you've thought it without being bold enough to say it. Something to the effect of, hey, if... If grace means that it's all Jesus and none me, then why not just go ahead and sin? And the gospel, see, they're saying declares people righteous while promoting unrighteous living. Now again, in chapters 5 to 8, Paul's going to give us a fuller answer. To this twisted thinking. But for right now know this. That God doesn't release us from obedience. Grace doesn't release us from obedience. It frees us to obedience. And so Paul. Brings up these two objections. To the gospel. But he doesn't give us a full answer yet. See, he says, is God unfaithful to the Jews? May it never be. Certainly not. More on that in chapters 9 through 11. He says, does the gospel of grace promote sin? May it never be. Certainly not. More on that in chapters 5 to 8. Because you see, this is a confusion of the Old Testament law and the coming of grace as the story of redemption unfolds in the New Testament. It's why we must understand the Old Testament in order to be able to understand the New Testament. It's a confusion of law presented in the Old Testament and the coming of grace presented in the New Testament. You see, the law doesn't save us. It never could. The law was meant to show us that we couldn't keep it perfectly enough to save us. In fact, let's look over here at one other passage there in your notes, Galatians chapter 3. Paul's writing that as well. The same guy that's writing here in Romans chapter 3, is writing here in Galatians chapter 3, and listen to what he says about the law. He says, starting in verse 23, he says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. 
If you have a King James Version in verse 24, it says the law was our schoolmaster. Says the, the, what he's, Paul is saying here is that the purpose of the law was to school us. It was to learn us. It was to teach us that we couldn't keep it fully. It's what drove Martin Luther to despair. Because you see, try as hard as he might, he just couldn't do enough. He couldn't work hard enough. He couldn't confess enough. And so that's what caused him when he read Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that the lights finally came on in his mind. Romans 1, 17, it says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. It's not by my works. It's not by my religious identity. It's not by my ritualistic practices. It's not by anything that I could do. It's only by faith from beginning to end, from first to last. It's only by faith, by putting my faith and trust in Jesus alone to be what's able to save me. And so Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 25. He says, now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We're not under the schoolmaster of the law anymore. And so, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through what? Faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That the law is what led us to understand our need for grace through faith alone. That our righteousness before God is Christ's righteousness because we have clothed ourselves in him. We don't stand righteous before God because of us, but because we've clothed ourselves in Christ. And so he says, verse 28, here's his conclusion. Then there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in him alone to save you, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, Paul is saying this is why there's no distinction now. That God has opened up the gates of salvation to all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus alone to save them. It's not our religious identity. It's not being Jewish or Catholic or Baptist or even a ministry partner of New Life Church. It's not our religious identity. It's not our rigorous rule keeping because none of us can do enough. 
because you see, sin is the problem, and only Jesus is the answer. And so the question for each of us this morning is this. Have you come to that realization? And if so, have you taken the step to receive the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to be your payment for your sin? Have you done that? If not, today would be a great day to take that step. In fact, our memory verse for this week, we've been memorizing verses out of the Romans road, and today it's Romans chapter 10, verse 13, where it says this. For everyone, not just the Jews, not just for a certain type of people, but for, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In fact, would you recite that verse with me? Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Have you done that? Have you come to that realization, it's only Jesus, and have you taken that step to call out to Jesus to be the payment for your sin? Let me tell you, in a minute we're going we're gonna to sing a couple more songs, and as we do that, like we normally have. There'll be prayer team people up here. And if there's any confusion in your mind over that, if you're not crystal clear that you've done that, that you've taken that step, then while we are singing, boy, slip out of your seat. Go to one of these people. There is nothing they would enjoy more than helping you know that you know that you know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, that your sins have been forgiven that you stand right before a holy God. And let me also say that maybe you're here this morning and you would say, well, I'm, I'm pretty clear on that. But you know, if I'm honest, Jesus isn't in the place in my life where he desires to be, where I know he ought to be. I've let something or someone or some situation or some action or some sin or something come between me and him. And if that's the case, can I say to you that today would be a great day to get that right with God, that he beckons you to come and be forgiven, to walk in right relationship with him. And, and in the same way, while we're singing, you can slip out, go to these people. They would love to just pray with you and pray for you. In fact, if you have anything going on in your life that you would benefit from someone just praying with you, then while we're singing, you feel that freedom. So while we stand, and I'm going to pray for us, and then as we worship, you feel that freedom to do business with God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did for us on the cross. 
for all that you endured, for the suffering that you took, to pay, to pay the precious price of your shed blood so that we could have our sins forgiven. And so, God, I pray for any man, any woman who's here this morning and they just haven't gotten that yet. They've been trying hard. They've been seeking. They've been doing. They've been working, Lord. I pray that the lights would come on for them and they would see it. That it's you, Jesus. It's what you did for them. It's not what they're going to do for you. And then, Lord, give them the courage to take that step to call out to you to save them. Lord, I pray as well for the man or woman who's here that knows they're not walking in a right relationship with you. God, give them the wisdom to see what steps they need to take and give them the courage to take it. All for your glory, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.